Hey friend, when was the last time you listened to a podcast that told you everything you needed to know to break into or do your work in the field of continuing medical education and continuing education for health professionals? If it's been a hot minute, or like never, you've arrived at the right podcast. In fact, you've arrived at Right Medicine, a weekly podcast that explores best practices in creating content that connects with and educates health professionals. Are you feeling stuck in your work? Are you looking for inspiration from your peers? Are you looking for a way to break into this incredibly rewarding and intellectually satisfying field? Well, Right Medicine is here to offer you guidance and strategies as you navigate all phases of CME and CE creation. Every Wednesday, join me, Alex Housen, a medical writer specializing in CME and CE content creation, as I host thoughtful, provocative, and rich conversations with guests about adult learning, content creation techniques, effective formats in CME and CE, and trends in healthcare that influence the type of content we create. Right Medicine is here to motivate you to learn and grow as a CME CE professional, wherever you are in the content creation process. If your work involves planning, designing, creating, delivering, or evaluating education for health professionals, this podcast is for you. Hello and welcome to Right Medicine. Before we get into today's episode, let me just share a review from Anna Iserman, or Iserman, PhD, a freelance medical and scientific writer. Anna says, I should thank you, Alex, for the brilliant podcast. Each episode is excellent and you cover such a wide range of topics. Your podcast has helped me gain a lot of perspective on many things and also given me so many insights into different aspects of CME and CE. Keep up the great work. It's much appreciated. Anna, we appreciate you. Thank you so much for being a Right Medicine listener. This podcast is for you. And as ever, if you have specific questions that you want us to focus on in the podcast, you can let me know. There's a link in the show notes. And now on to today's episode, which is on instructional design. Now, instructional design for online courses is, of course, a crucial aspect of modern CME and CE. And as online learning has grown over the last 15 years or so, especially since 2020, instructional designers play an even more important role in creating effective and engaging CME and CE content. So in today's episode, I'm speaking with Mark Haggerty, an expert in effective instructional design in the context of CME. CE, who also has a passion for behavioral and life sciences. Mark shares insights from his three-decade-long career in education and his background in psychology, biology, and organizational behavior. We dive into the challenges of creating content that's informed and infused with empathy and humanity, and how staying curious and open-minded feeds into human-centered instructional design. We also explore how our emotional lives and emotions play a significant role in our learning and retention of information. Instructional design for online CME and CE is a dynamic and evolving field that requires a deep understanding of learning theories, behavior change, and effective communication. Join us to explore what makes a learning experience truly robust 
and how we can move beyond knowledge-based instruction by providing opportunities for learners to practice and apply their skills. Hi, Mark, and welcome. Thank you. It's a privilege. I'm honored to see and talk to you today, Alex. Thank you. Oh, no, it's great. The pleasure is mine. It's, it's It's going to be fun and interesting. So, you know, tell listeners who you are and a little bit about your professional journey. Ah, well, thank you. I've been in education for over three decades. Uh, most of that has been in corporate training, and I'm trained as an instructional designer. I've always had an interest in behavioral and life sciences, so I got did my undergraduate work in psychology and biology. I have a master's in organizational behavior, and that led uh, directly into corporate training after a couple of years in teaching public school. So that was most of my career. And up until about 2016, I learned about this thing called medical writing and medical editing. And I said, oh, that that just sounds like a a great turn for my career. And so I completed uh, the certificate from the Graham School at the University of Chicago Mm. in 2017. I joined and now participate in AMWA, uh, American Medical Writers Association. I'm the Northern California chapter president, if you can believe that, a newbie like me. Wow. That's a lot of work. (laughs) I I work as an instructional designer for a national laboratory here in California. So I work for the feds, and we do all kinds of research about things up and down all the sciences. Uh, I, I serve as the training liaison for the biosafety and health services parts of the laboratory, among other duties out there. And also when I when I finished my certificate with the Graham School, I started a fledgling little freelance company uh, helping other people, hoping to get more into the sort of the traditional CME kinds of projects and working in there because most of my stuff is uh, is different. <laughs> it's a different instructional design thing than traditional CME. that's me. Uh, So let's talk about that a little bit, because so there's a couple of things. I mean, it strikes me that you have such a wonderful background for CME. You have instructional design, you you have Mm -hmm. uh, behavioral change and organizational change. And of course, we we know that, you know, assessment and outcomes is all about behavioral change, uh, as well as as learning outcomes. And yeah, that's the entire goal, right? Right. And so can you talk a little bit about and you just said that your instructional design approach is different. So can you talk a little bit about what makes your approach different? And then maybe we can dig into how your background helps your work in education for health professionals. I think maybe my approach is very common. I'm just thinking that my uh, the, the environment I work in is not traditional in, mm. in that it's not in a hospital, it's not in a clinic. I work with doctors and nurses and health professionals, but uh, not in the traditional way. My instructional design background helps me because I, yeah, I create courses all the time. Uh, Instructional design is at the core of that. Most of my communication, most of the communication I do is with the workforce out there. So I help the, the doctors and the nurses who are on site communicate what they need to do to make pe- make sure that people are staying safe in their work 
because in our particular environment, there's a lot of hazards that we deal with and we need to make sure people go home feeling the same way they did as when they came to work that day. So, And so in that, in that biohazard and safety training and instructional design, is a lot of that yes. online? It all depends. And that's, that's one of the things that a good instructional designer will do say, what is the, the appropriate mode of delivery for this? And basically, if you need to learn content that is, uh, I need to learn about a topic, we try to do that online as much as we can. If uh, this is a laboratory piece where you have to perform particular actions at a lab bench, for example, mm-hmm. that will usually be at a bench or at a simulation of a bench. Right. And we are looking at uh, doing things that are online simulations too, because people can practice that and still develop the skill. But up until now, if you needed to be able to manipulate certain things, you know, work in a machine that will do some analysis, we want you to practice working on that machine. Oh, that that totally makes sense. Yeah. And it was I remember I mean I I was an OR a trauma OR nurse for many years. Uh-huh, and yes. and of course training as a nurse and and being a health professional involves a lot of exposure to Hazards from needles and then the OR environment, hazards from gases and, you know, various other substances that are exactly, potentially yes. in, the, in the air. And I, I do remember kind of doing some of that training. But at that time, in the 80s, so that dates me, I know. <laughs> I'm right there with you. <laughs> you know, so a lot of that training would be, it would either be face-to-face and kind of walking through various scenarios. Or, you know, text and classroom based is, mm-hmm. is kind of my memory of, of that kind of training. And so I wanted to ask you, do, when you're creating online courses mm-hmm. and simulations, are you using something like Articulate or, you know, how do you approach Yeah, the, in terms of the, the tools, it's one of the yeah. important things that the tools that we use at the laboratory include uh, Articulate Storyline for most of the things so we can do the uh, interactions there. We also use quite a bit of Camtasia and Snagit, believe it or not. So we're mm-hmm. we're grabbing things and and much of the work a lot of scientists do now is on the computer just like the rest of us. Mm-hmm. And we're grabbing images and processes from the screen and turning those into short videos to say here's what it's going to look like, here's what you do next. And we can even build in little practice scenarios. So click on the appropriate icon uh, mm-hmm. to make this result. And we can simulate that within the within our, our little video clip. Oh, that's excellent. Whether they get it right or wrong, yeah. then do some remedial training if they get it wrong. So you have that kind of feedback loop built in so that then yeah. people get some kind of sense of Yes. what they've done that is correct, what's not correct, and then they can course correct and, and move forward in the in the platform. That's it. Yeah. And just practice. Sometimes they just yeah. want to practice doing something. And that's, that's how they get better. That's how you build the skill. Exactly. You know, deliberate practice is, is one of the kind of core components of, of adult learning and effective learning. We don't see a lot of the kind of online plus or minus simulation courses that you've just described in the CME world. We do, we still right. see a lot of text-based education. So can you 
talk a little bit about, well, I guess a couple of things, but the first thing is, you know, what kind of contents, if we're, if we're sticking with text, mm-hmm. what kind of content strategies help to accelerate learning? I got to say, I, I have a really hard time sticking with text. It's a hard way to learn. One of the, one of the premises that I follow is involve as many senses as you can. Mm. The more senses we involve in the learning, the better the learning sticks. So mm. if you, if you are working on a text document, sometimes we have to do that. A lot of times, especially you imagine in the government, there's a lot of times where we just, need to tell that people have been exposed to a particular document. You know, you have seen it. Right. And if you say you, you've seen it and you've read it, that's all we need to be able to check it off. Not my favorite kind of thing to do, but uh, that's, that's part of the work. And so we have things that we, we call read and sign. So it's basically read through it and you acknowledge that you read through it. Okay. How much did you learn there? How mm-hmm. did you, is, is it going to change your behavior? Anything? Most of that is just uh, basically liability kinds of things and why it's not my favorite kind of training. If I'm going to do something that is mostly in the text, I'll, I will take that document and put it into something like a storyline and put the bunches of text that I need and possibly build a little story around it. Storytelling is another technique that I use extensively because of how well it works for retention. Mm-hmm. Human brains retain things so much better when we just follow along the story. We remember the whole story just in our, just as we just move along. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I will do that, add appropriate little images or video clips in there to, to help that help someone remember what's going on in that document, give them a little quiz at the end. Hey, what did you think about this? Or how many milligrams of this, uh, of this uh, drug were needed to accomplish, a, you know, the, the appropriate dose, something like that. Mm-hmm. It, it's all much better retained. If the powers that are ordering or requesting the training don't care about people retaining it. They just want to be able to check it off. I don't bother with any of that because there's other things we can do. There's plenty of things that people need to be trained on. So does that help? Does that answer your question? I don't. Yeah. Well, I have more questions. I feel like I just went, a, went astray a little bit, but that's. I yeah, that's no, fine. that's, that's great. You're talking about, you know, creating different learning experiences in the biohazard and safety context. Yes. How do you see, well, before I ask that question, let me ask another question. You mentioned using all the senses. You know, one of the things that I hear from uh, some experts in the CME field is that emotions don't really have a place in the type of learning that clinicians need to do when they're doing CME or when they're doing, you know, continuing education. What do you think about that? Whether emotions have a place. Well, I understand the the direction that's coming from, but our emotional lives are just as important as the rational lives, and that's why they both exist in us, and but why they both exist and come out even when we our our species developed uh, this emotional life and the complexity that comes from it in order to keep us 
well and safe. And that goes to our learning as well. All of our learning will help us. I think someone who is trying to do a particular kind of work, if it's really intense, it's really important, must have the appropriate kind of attitude. And that emotional response is important to that. It's it's all one. And saying that we need to cut out the emotional content is like saying, I need to, I need to shut off half of you as a human being mm. in order to teach this. And it just doesn't fit in the real world later on. What we can teach is also, if you're thinking of, are these scenarios like a surgeon has to be cool and calm in the middle of things, even when things go awry? Is it that kind of a situation that you're thinking of, Alex? I think that's a great example. I was actually thinking about, I was thinking back to learning about biohazards and mm -hmm. safety when I was an OR nurse and yes. being a little afraid. You yeah. know, you're, you're, you know, 21 years old or 22 years old and you're learning about things that could potentially mess you up or mess someone else up. <laughs> yes. There's fear. So does that fear seem that. like it was misplaced to a 20 year old? 20-year-old Alex? Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. See, it's it's this thing saying, oh, this is a warning. Not what, and what that does is it piques your interest and, and focuses your brain so that you will retain the things you need to retain mm. to know, uh, maybe identify the, the odor of a particular gas that might be in the OR or to be aware of uh, which sharps have been used and which are biohazards now. Things like that, mm -hmm. so that you learned that, right? The emotion was the thing that accelerated your learning and, right. and really solidified it in your mind rather than just saying, okay, here's a list of facts of things that I need to remember right. when I step in. That's what a checklist is for, that list of facts. And checklists have their place. So how do we Absolutely. build in that acknowledgement? I mean, one of the things that I argue sometimes is that I'm a writer, you're a writer. If you're writing content for mm -hmm. an education activity, then yes. you can write into the text acknowledgement of the types of re emotional response that the learner might be having to, you know, the particular scenario that you're, that you're writing about. So for instance, for instance, in many areas of medicine and healthcare, there's a lot of frustration because clinicians can't get access to the medicines that they want. They mm -hmm. don't have time to do the kind of diagnostic or evaluation that they want to do. So frustration is a, is a persistent emotion or feeling yes. for, for people. And I would argue you can, you can at the very least acknowledge that in any sort of text-based content that you're developing. What do you yes. think about that? Or what other strategies are there that we can use to bring emotion into that learning experience? One of the one of the really cool things I can think of right now is that instructional designers should learn about narrative writing. Should learn, you know, take a uh -huh. class in in not and how novels are written. And when you're walking into that scenario, you're writing scenarios and write the uh, things for, you know, you build a character who is going to be the physician and build in the obstacles so that physician is really feeling frustrated. So the person is actually, we read that 
And we actually start getting some frustration in ourselves saying, oh, we got to get him or her through this. And that's the story. And that's the storytelling part yeah. that comes yeah. that comes out. And we remember it better. It's not just because it's more fun to read. It's more fun to read because the brain's having an easier time absorbing the information. Mm -hmm. That's why it feels more comfortable. Mm -hmm. And that's the part that, that we should be building in so that when the doctor goes into the actual situation, she might feel this frustration that might be building up. And say, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's a normal part of this yeah. process is to feel the frustration of not having all of the pieces in place, not having all of the medicines that I need or whatever. And so you can recognize yourself in the text as a learner. Exactly. As well. Yeah. It's no, I, I love that. Uh, it's yeah. relatable. Yeah. We actually had Ben Riggs on the podcast a few weeks ago uh -huh. talking about uh, narrative writing in the context of creating clinical content. And so I'll make sure to put a link in the in the show notes to yeah, um, please do yeah to that episode. So thinking then, so we've talked about a number of different things. We've talked about using the senses and the role that that the senses play in in learning, and maybe there's more to talk about there. I wanted to kind of ask the question of you know, in your view and in your experience, what makes for a robust learning experience, whether we're talking about online or live? What are the things that you're, that you're looking for, that you're trying to pull in to make sure that it's really protein rich for the learner? Ah, the learner's experience. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, when I'm thinking about these experiences now, since the pandemic, it's become much more prevalent for us to attend things that are live and online, the webinar sort of style things. Prior to that, it usually meant on demand where you would, you would have a, a course that was just completed and you just, you just played it like a video and went through and interacted with it. And then you were done that way. What makes it robust is in, is the inclusion of enough interactions so that the person can feel that they are doing it and practicing the skill that we're trying to do. If it's just something that is knowledge-based, the robustness can come. Again, I hate to keep going back to it. Tell them a story. Mm -hmm. Tell them a story Put and put them in the uh, protagonist role and have them go through it so they experience some kinds of conflict. And uh, by the time they get through practicing, and do that successfully, they are resolving the conflict and voila, happily ever after. And the kind of middle road for a lot of continuing medical education activities is case-based activities mm -hmm. or patient, you know, using patient cases where, yeah. and some of that is text-based. You're kind of reading along and, and sure. then perhaps there's a reflective question or a multiple choice question asking you, what are you going to do next? This, 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 or this. Yeah. What's your view of that kind of approach? I think it's perfect yeah. for for turning it into a, a narrative. I mean, cases are narratives, right? Mm -hmm. Here's the here's the person. Here's the condition they're in. Here's the here's the conflict they are experiencing. Mm -hmm. What do we do with that? Yeah. And so, for writers who are involved in developing 
either patient cases or some other kind of content that is text heavy. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that you would advise them to think about in order to make more of a story? And sometimes the writer doesn't have much control over, you know, the format and uh, Mm -hmm. whether there's scope for building in storytelling or not. Right, right. And they can't, you know, we just have to start with patient uh, this many years old and and uh, this ethnic background and and just give the details so you're not really doing that you can't start with Phil felt a pain in his knee for the first time on uh, you know a sunny Sunday morning you know we don't have the chance to go into that that level of detail sometimes sometimes there is for sure sometimes we do uh, but if if we don't just in you include what what are the things that are see the the big thing in in turning into a narrative is making sure that you have some conflict and the conflict comes in the pain the patient is experiencing mm-hmm. the uh whether it's actual something that's going on in pain or if if they're not in pain but they have some some kind of uh condition that they've been told about you know uh, maybe an emotional kind of pain that's in there mm. just Fo- with focus on that more than just here's a list here's a list of uh conditions or symptoms or signs hmm. i think it, the more we focus on the the humanity of the people who are in the case study the easier it is for other people to absorb that it's the 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 focus on empathy maybe This episode of Right Medicine is brought to you by Right CME Pro, a membership-driven community that provides skills, scaffolding, and support for medical writers who want to create CME content with confidence. Right CME Pro gives you access to expert perspectives to help you build your CME writing skills, a portfolio accelerator to hold space so that you can create stunning samples to show your prospects group coaching to help you build foundational and expert knowledge in CME and more. Write CME Pro is a community for people like you who are ready to grow their CME writing niche or niche, if that's how you say it. See the show notes for more details. I agree 100%. Do you encounter challenges in creating content that is informed and infused by humanity and empathy? All the time. <laughs> I, okay, tell me more. I want to hear about that. <laughs> yes, all all the time. But for me, being a, a, a bit of a stranger in this, I get hit with it like it's a, a crossword puzzle or a jigsaw puzzle, it's like, this is something I have to figure out. How do I infuse the humanity into this and make it more than just an operation on a particular kind of tissue? And that's kind of that. And how do the, that's, that's my challenge as a, as an instructional designer. How do I bring that? I've done, uh, things on how, how to keep people safe in a variety of different machines and conditions in my work and in not not just where I am now, but through the other industries that I've I've worked at, 
And it's always been that. I mean, how do you, how do you make driving a forklift an interesting story? Right. That's an example. Well, been able to do that by talking about what happens if you don't drive it safely and it tips exactly. over on you. Yeah. I, yeah. I, that's exactly where my mind went. Well, there's, yeah, exactly. there's so many potential you, hazards there. What do, what do you think about that forklift? Oh, well, it might fall on me if I don't do it right. <laughs> right, right. And so what are some of the things that you do to to bring in empathy and humanity? Look for that. Look for the human element. Look for the hazards that might happen. That's the conflict. Look for uh, those things and talk about it. Say, what would you think if those are the kinds of sentences that I, that I write? Or when you're doing a, a scenario, put someone else in the driver's seat, so to speak. We're not talking about forklifts anymore, but uh, put somebody else in the protagonist role and say, Jim is doing this activity and he decides that he doesn't need to go through the checklist before, you know, the pre-op checklist, because he's done this a thousand times before, what would you, what would you recommend to Jim? And I'm, I'm just coming off the top of my head with mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah. And of course we know the value of checklists because Atul Gawande has written about this, you know, in Absolutely. the context of surgery so beautifully. Yes. And I was, I've been uh, a leader of instructional design teams where I just went out and bought because it was so important. I bought his book for everybody in the team. Wow. You know, just went out and bought 15 copies of the book and said, everybody, we're going to read this. And next week we're going to, we're going to start talking about it and how we, how we design around these ideas. And That's so, a wonderful yeah, idea. I totally agree with you, Alex. That's uh, the checklist has a huge place in doing this kind of work recommended reading. I'm actually in the middle of putting together a reading list for new to the field medical writers or, you know, CME writers who don't necessarily have any exposure to the clinical context and don't uh -huh. necessarily have a sense of what it is that health professionals do and how they work. Because there's so many great, you know, biographical and autobiographical works out there where clinicians are talking about the challenges of, of being a health professional. And I think it, it would bode us all well as uh, CME writers to dive into some of these texts because they're Absolutely. so Absolutely. I'd love to see that list. Yeah. And you get that sense of just how challenging and heartbreaking working in healthcare can sometimes be. As well mm -hmm. as, you know, the joys and the elevating and uplifting elements of, of being a health professional. Just to kind of wrap up, how do you stay current with best practices and trends uh -huh. in instructional design and in medical writing? And what would you recommend others in this field do? I keep up by networking as much as I can, talking, talking to a lot of different people, trying to get a lot of different perspectives. Work through LinkedIn. I, I'm not huge on other other social platforms. I like LinkedIn, but I think there's a lot of churn in in other places. Uh, I like to talk to real people. Become uh, involved in the professional organizations. For for me, that would be like AMWA and the Alliance. I seek out people who know more than I do about something, and that's 
very easy for me to do right now with the in the medical writing spot for the instructional design thing. I think I'm doing pretty well in, in, in keeping up with things. Remain a lifelong learners. Keep going to classes. Uh, keep your curiosity high. I read as much as, as time will allow me to do that. And I think it's really important to strive to be grateful and humble and stay open-minded. And that's how I keep up with it. I talk to people like you who let me know what, what's going on in the world. Those are such great character qualities. Oh. I mean, thank you for, for sharing those. I think we forget sometimes that, you know, the core values that we have in our, yeah. in our lives and as people are really important to bring into the professional space. It absolutely is. Bring our whole selves. Exactly, exactly. Are there other things that you want to communicate about the power of effective instructional design in the context of continuing medical education? If people were to, if you're working mm -hmm. with clients on a project, what is it that you want them to feel they're able to do with a really robust approach to instructional design? Yeah, learn Learn the instructional design process. That's the biggest thing. And that's uh, listed as, uh, we, we call it the ADDI process, A-D-D-I-E. Mm. You might have heard of that. It stands for Analysis, Design, Develop, Implement, and Evaluate. And that's just sort of our basic, the basic bones of how you put together instruction that is effective. In other words, that people can go through an experience and it changes what they know or what they can do, changes behavior. So uh, learn that. That's what people should do if they're interested in uh, developing instructional design skills. Learn the tools like uh, Adobe Captivate or Articulate Storyline, uh, Camtasia, the things that are specified and are meant to help design instruction. Other than that, have fun, generate new ideas, play with it is the is the best thing you can do. And uh, we, I know that we talked about Addy earlier when we were thinking about this this episode. Yeah, I didn't bring it up much <laughs> here. Yeah, no, I, that's okay. And I, I think I've sort of absorbed it as my as it's sort of the uh -huh. the canvas of all the painting I do. Yes, right. No, that's a lovely a lovely way to put it. So. In the CME world, uh, you know, uh -huh. Plan Do Study Act is is one of the kind of planning models that is is probably one of the most common. Planning yeah, the models. Deming the Deming Plan Do Study. Act, right. Yes. Yeah, PDSA, and so if we were looking at those those two planning models, how do they compare in terms of the kind of the quality of content you're likely to get? I think they they align completely. In fact, so in some ways, they're very much. Just the same thing written in, written from a, a different lens. Uh, plan, do, study, act, and analyze, design, develop, and implement. When you're planning, you do your analysis. When you're doing, you're actually creating the blueprint as design. You're creating the content, which is the develop. Uh, study it, you implement it, and uh, the acting is like okay, that's implementing would go into uh into acting as well 
I, I see them aligning. A lot of these things are just like figure out what you want to do, think about how to do it, do the work to create that thing into the real world, and then release it into the world. Uh, I think a lot of these things have a lot of similarities in how we how we follow, how we behave. And where can people find you, Mark? Ah, my goodness. You know, I didn't even think about this part at all when you do that, but thank you. I have a really long email address, but you're always welcome to do that. Find me on LinkedIn, Mark Haggerty. That's Haggerty with one G. Or you can you can write to me at mark at biomedicalwritingservices.com. So string that all together. Yeah, we'll make sure to put links to those things yeah, in the show know. notes. You would you would be doing a public service, so giving them a link, not having to type that big long uh, <laughs> yeah, email absolutely. address. Absolutely, Mark Haggerty, instructional designer, teacher, medical writer, so many things. Thank you for sharing your uh, insights and wisdom with listeners of Right Medicine. It's been my absolute privilege. Thank you, Alex. If you'd like to connect with me or today's guest or access any of the resources we talked about, check out the show notes for this episode. They're on my website, where you'll also find additional resources. Find the show notes at alexhausen.com forward slash write w-r-i-t-e dash medicine dash podcast. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe to the Write Medicine newsletter where you'll find bi-weekly tips, tools, and resources to help you create continuing medical education content with confidence. And thank you for listening today. Word of mouth is the most meaningful way we can help listeners find us and reach a wider audience. So please share this episode with a friend, a colleague, or a client who might find the podcast helpful. And if you enjoy listening to the podcast, please write a favorable review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or share your testimonial on the dedicated testimonial link, which is also in the show notes.